Stuart Diver and this is Climate Emergency, a special bonus episode of The Elements. The stories of survival and resilience we deal with in this podcast all play out against the backdrop of climate change and its influence on extreme weather events. Climate change is an urgent and immediate threat to our way of life. It can no longer be classified as the elephant in the room. The reality is the elephant has long since bolted, heading for the hills while we sit under a rapidly sinking roof, about to collapse on top of us. So why the inaction, and do we still have time to save ourselves? Today I'm joined by leading experts Professor Leslie Hughes and Professor Ove Ho-Gulberg to discuss the latest IPCC report, how climate scientists deal with all the scepticism and why a change in communication might hold the key. My name is Leslie Hughes. I'm a professor of biology at Macquarie University in Sydney. I've worked for a long time on climate impacts on species and ecosystems as as an ecologist. Uh, And I'm currently a councillor with the Climate Council of Australia. My name is Ove Gulberg. I'm professor of marine studies at the University of Queensland. I have spent over 30 years of my life looking at issues relating to climate change and in the early days, coral reefs, but now the broader setting of oceans is, is where I put a lot of my effort. Well, um, welcome to both of you to the Elements podcast. Uh, thank you for your time and um, and giving us that time up. And I um, have to say it's a real honour um, to have two people who've devo- devoted so much of their lives um, you know, to that whole the whole issue around climate change and where we're going. And I can imagine that at times, given you've spent so much of your lives, it must be a little bit frustrating at times uh, to see what can be currently going on in the world around us. Um, obviously, I live in Threadbow, which is, you know, as you know, a beautiful natural uh, environment. I've been lucky um, in my upbringing. Um, my mum and dad were great outdoors people. And so I spent a lot of time in the bush. Um, so we're very keen to look at, um, you know, obviously, how climate change is going to affect, you know, the future of uh, Threadbow, but also, you know, I'm keen to explore how it's going to affect the, the future of, um, you know, of Australia and, and of the world. Um, I think this topic can be a bit overwhelming um, for some of our some of our listeners. Um, you know, it, it just seems so huge that it seems that we can't possibly do anything to move forward. But just starting off, I'd just like to ask you a question, you know, do you think it is too late to make any real change um, and to have a, a positive effect on our environment around us and what's going on with climate change. I mean, obviously, with the IPCC report coming out, um, there was a fair bit of doom and gloom in there. Do you, do you think we've missed the boat or, or is there still an opportunity uh, to move forward? Leslie, I might start with you. Well, I think the silver lining of the IPCC report, which, as you say, was pretty full of gloom and doom, is that I think for the first time the IPCC was actually also very clear in the report that rapid and deep emissions cuts could mean a stabilisation of global temperatures within 20 to 30 years, So, which is within our lifetimes, and that was the phrase the IPCC used. So while um, the IPCC report was full of all of the things that are going to get worse before they get better, they did actually put a time frame on which decade things could get better by. So we haven't missed the boat yet. It will get worse before it gets better. 
but there is a huge focus now on doing what we need to do this decade. So in the next five to 10 years, when we get to 2030, if we're still in the same position we are now, it's looking certainly pretty late for two degrees and maybe even too late for more extreme temperatures above that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, it's uh, from... Yeah, it, it, the time is nigh. We need to be doing it now. And 2030 is what keeps getting, um, you know, quite even, you know, in our business in Threadbow, a lot of the stuff that we're doing around it is, you know, that, that that's the the date that's in everyone's mind. So, so it is urgent. Um, Ove, do you agree? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And, and it is literally down to the wire. Um, for a number of years, it's been the last decade and... Uh, and now I think the with the pattern of extreme events that's starting to really roll out and, and some of these areas that were less uh, or more tentatively understood are now coming into reality. Sort of, you know, bushfire seasons are, are, are absolutely, you know, off the charts. Um, large things like the Great Barrier Reef are up and dying, you know, in ways which could not have been imagined. A lot of your work involves oceans and warming oceans um, and what's going on with the Great Barrier Reef, et cetera. Yeah, and warming oceans obviously contribute to a lot to, to what happens uh, over the bodies of land as well. You know, what, what are your predictions for bushfires, um, flood-style events going forward? Obviously, if there's not changes made, do you see them as being worse? Do you see them, you know, being uh, in greater number as we go forward if we don't make any changes? Yeah, look, I mean, um, it's unequivocal with the latest IPCC report, which is about the physical basis of, of climate change, that we've gone from suspecting that um, extreme events would um, increase in duration and frequency to now knowing that it's very solidly rooted now. And it's telling us that it's it's um, the further we go, the, the greater and larger events are and, and so on. What's important is that it depends on where you are. For example, on the Great Barrier Reef, um, you know, the local warming and so on and, 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 and weather systems are predicting that in some seasons you will see less cyclones than we see today uh, than in, in the other. And so there's a lot of variability. What, what is very clear is that even though the frequency changes, the size of these storms is becoming larger. And when you combine that with sea level rise, so you're now having a storm rolling in um, over several metres of seawater that sort of has as you know, the sort of the storm rise, you're starting to see much bigger impacts on ecosystems, on people, on industry, and so on. Uh, and again, this, these are changes which take a long time to reverse. Mm. Sea level rise is going to go on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so the decision we make today is so important in terms of turning that future off. Yep. Leslie? Well, in the terrestrial environment, what we're seeing and will continue to see for some decades at least is um, the water cycle intensifying. And what that means is that dry areas are tending to get drier and suffering more um, droughts. And the, the droughts that we get are, are longer and more severe and hotter. We're also getting, when we do get rain, we're getting rain falling down in much more intense bursts. And of course, that causes flooding. Mm -hmm. Thinking back then to um, the Black Summer bushfires, you know, the word unprecedented was used a lot because the mm. extent and the severity of those fires were unprecedented, but we cannot think of those as being a one-off set of mm. circumstances. You know, yep. 2019 was Australia's warmest and 
driest year, so it's set up the perfect conditions for those fires. But we, we are still getting hotter and we will get more dry years. So those sorts of conditions will come again, possibly in the next few years, at least in the next decade, and we really need to be prepared for that. So, And then there's all the things like our agricultural industries, you know, places yep. like the Murray-Darling Basin have been drying for three decades, the southwest to Western Australia similarly. So our, our very food security is, yep. is at risk in the future as well. We'll have to live in different places. There'll be places... In, in Australia, where, which will just be too hot and too dry to live. And yep. even our capital cities on the coasts, you know, 50 degree days could well be quite normal by the middle of this century. Yep. So basically everything that we've seen so far in Australia's variable and tough climate is going to get more so at least for the next few decades. Mm-hmm. That's the really important bit for people to realise that, you know, if it starts affecting the amount of food you have on the table, <laughs> if it starts affecting your ability to go outdoors because it's 50 degrees, it's nice to be on the beach when it's 30, but not so nice when it's 50. Um, I think they're the really important messages to get out to people and say, you know, that's why it is so, so important for us to make those changes now. Sure. And, and I just want to add that um, there is no place to hide in this uh, landscape of, 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 of heat stress. And while we are having bushfires on land, of course, the world's largest continuous reef system, the Great Barrier Reef, also lost 50% of its corals across its mm. 2,300-kilometre length. Uh, again, it was on land. You were scorched by fire in the water and so on. So these these things compound as well. Yeah, I think it's really important that um, we don't go down a pathway where, I mean, even a doubling is going to be crippling to emergency services and and, and so on. I mean, it's really yep. we're unprepared at this point. Yeah, future which is only a few uh, decades away. Yeah. So, is there anything unique about Australia? and New Zealand and how we're positioned in the world that is going to make uh, those more extreme uh, weather events uh, harsher in Australia uh, due to, you know, probably our already harsh climate? Well, Australia in particular, if we think about continental Australia on land, um, even without the climate changing, about three quarters of the Australian continent is considered arid or semi-arid. So we've already got a difficult climate to live in. It's also a highly variable climate, you know, the the Dorothea McKellar um, poem that's often quoted. So you add climate change into an already difficult place to live um, where we most of us sort of cluster around the coasts because that's where it's more benign. Add climate change into that, and you know that it's exacerbated. So, so we're we're putting climate change on top of an already difficult place to live, mm. and we are seeing the impacts of that now. I mean, Ove can talk about this, but I mean, some of the parts of our southern oceans, for example, between Australia and New Zealand and Australia and Tasmania, are actually warming faster than almost any other parts of the ocean yeah. on the planet. No, so, I was going to mention that um, Australia as a landmass is at 1.44 degrees Celsius, whereas the average surface temperature of the planet is about 1.1. 1. 1. Uh, okay. So we're heating up faster. Now, of course, there are other land masses that have similar issues. It's just one part of the vulnerability that we, we face. 
And it's very true that our oceans are a very complex being so that, you know, southern Australia is warming, I think, at about two degrees Celsius. It's that change, that little change, it seems, is, is leading to a flood of species into Tasmania that are changing that fundamentally and, and probably irreversible. Yep. So all of this is happening. And then at the side, on, on the side here, there is the observation that humans, when they get motivated, can do amazing things. And it's quite often, you know, um, I think we need to realise that without becoming techno-optimists, you know, to sort of put it aside and sort of drink the cordial, we're actually at a point now where it's down to the wire, we need to get going. But if we do, flattening out the climate curve in the next decade or so, um, and I think that's it, isn't it, Leslie, in the next decade or so, I think we'll be in a position where life, human systems and so on will be able to reassert lots of pain but it won't become unmanageable. I think that's the silver lining. Yeah, it's interesting you say that when, you know, just talking through the different podcasts of how people have, you know, survived and got through bushfires and all of that, the one of the common threads is how well Australians, we all pull together in times of need. For me, it just seems that with climate change, we, we haven't, as a general populace, worked out that just how serious it is. We look at, you know, these reports it, it goes away. I mean, and, and, and we just get on with our lives because I look out the window today and it's a beautiful day and it was minus seven last night and all the mountains are covered in snow. And so, what, you know, what, what, how does it affect my life? You know, at the moment, probably not, not, not really greatly. How do we motivate the, the wider population to get on board and to, and to unite us to say that this is a major issue? You know, the time has run out. We need to do something now main way to motivate people is is to talk about the things they care about most and for most people that's their families you know their kids their future grandkids whatever um so i find that it's absolutely right what you say Stuart you know i'm looking out the window now it's a beautiful day i'm living in a nice house in a nice suburb in a nice city life is pretty good until you turn the tv on of course um so I think we've got to keep encouraging people to look ahead because even if we are all not around um, in the second half of this century, hopefully our children and maybe our grandchildren will be. And I think we have to keep reminding people about what sort of world they will inherit from us because of our actions or lack of action. Yep. So finding the thing that pe people really care about and getting them to look ahead uh, to me, that's the key. Yeah. Uh, do you agree? Do you? Yeah, look, I totally agree. And I, one thing that terrifies me is my 20-something children, and when you do the calculations, they're well into the second part of the, uh, the century, in which we are sort of, um, if we don't take action, uh, creating a very dangerous circumstance. And the idea that they would experience this is really motivating for me personally i know for others it's interesting because i mean i think that you know people are making decisions not to have children because of the the fear of yeah. what the world's going to be like in 20 30 years so it's obviously in people's minds for me i mean there's there's a couple of points there i think i mean wh where do we get that leadership from i mean obviously in a democratic society like ours it comes you know currently through political leadership um of which uh, we see Sometimes some in Australia, but I definitely think on the whole climate change issue, we, we haven't seen that. My, from my point of view, I look at, which we can delve into a little bit, but from my point of view, I look at, you know, you talk about 
the younger people coming through, my daughter's uh, 10, you know, you're talking about 20-year-olds, I see them as being the future. And I think if we can educate them enough on, you know, the dire situation that we're in currently, then they will come through. They will show that leadership as, you know, we go on. Yeah, I mean, they should be angry. I mean, I, that's yep. what I, I don't want my children. So, you know, but if you look at it and, and see what we're leaving behind with a high level of scientific precision, you know, it, it's it's atrocious. It, it should be, and, and sure, we've seen the marches of kids and so on and so forth, but it should be making everyone sort of very angry that we haven't actually had the, the leadership um, or the drivers so that we could avoid this this calamity or, or, or avoid it as much as possible. Yeah. Why do you, why do you think, Politicians are so reticent to to lead on this. I mean, not that they're. I think it's called short termism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not not that they're so, showing um, great leadership on a lot of other areas currently either. But um, no, that's right. And so we've, our political cycle is like you know a four year cycle. Yeah. And so you know if you make a change at the beginning of your sort of leadership, you know, interval, uh, and it's um, unpopular, it it will trail into the next election. Yeah. And so yeah. you will avoid making those sort of longer. Uh, term decisions and so on, or, or longer term decisions that have longer term consequences. Yes. So we've got to, have, it's almost like we've got to have a, you know, on some issues, this is so important that it shouldn't be kicked around the field like a football. If you go to sort of, you know, Britain, where both sides of parliament are behind, you know, behind action on the climate change issue, the conversation is very, very different. And in fact, they're leading the charge, whereas the country with the largest renewable resources on the planet in terms of energy is a lagger. Yeah, yeah, it's just so incredible. I mean, I, like, yeah, I look at that and just, yeah, it's, un, it's unbelievable that we've you know, allowed ourselves to get there. And it's sometimes I look at it and say, you know, it's times like this, you need a really good dictatorship where they can just come in and, <laughs> and make the decisions. <laughs> you know, not that I want a dictatorship in Australia, but that, that's and sort of what it's got, a, it's got a ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we won't quite go down that road. Someone did say the other day in my... Uh, Am I hunt? Is this all about me hunting down a uh, a political seat? And I said, no chance. <laughs> I will uh, not 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 in the current format. Uh, go into politics. This, but, is, uh, this is being videoed, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. We'll definitely snipe from the side. But it's um yeah, it is one of those ones that I that I look at and just cannot believe. Given the position, as you say, with you know an abundant um you know natural uh, you know. New, renewable access to renewable resources. It's just you know incredible that we're not um that we're not uh, going down that pathway and showing leadership in the world. But I, I do have faith that the generations will come through. I, I do agree that um you know the younger people are definitely angry and they should be angry. But it's how how we harness that. I, it's almost like we need to change the word climate change because climate change has become such a political football that the moment it's mentioned, I can guarantee seventy five percent of people just switched off. They just go, I'm on another sphere. I mean, Leslie, do you think it's, it's probably a little bit um, trite, but do you think it's a branding issue for, for this discussion? You know, if we're going to actually get people to become engaged and make real change, either we have to, you know, threaten and, and, you know, make them do it, or is it just that we have to be smarter in the way that we educate people the way that we have the discussions around climate change to make it more real for people. Yeah, look, I think there is a problem with the phrase climate change because change can be positive or negative. It's a sort of too benign a word. I mean, I, I am in favour of the phrase climate emergency, you know, mm. because we do actually have to be on a war footing here if we're going to um, 
do what we need to do over the next decade. I do want to say something, though, about the kids. And, and you know, the, the school kids' marches and everything were, were fantastic events. But we don't have time for those school kids to become powerful in politics um, because, you know, those school kids, a lot of them can't even vote yet, let alone, you know, yeah. um, the reins of, of decision-making power. So I think it's... It's too simplistic to say, well, you know, we can all leave it to the kids and when they grow up, they'll they'll be better than we are. Because we we because we've got to do something really strongly this decade, we don't have time for our kids to, to be in positions of power. Certainly when they can all vote, that will help. I think the other thing about Australian politics is that there remains this conservative ideology about the dichotomy between economy and environment. You know, climate change is often described as an environmental problem and we have to do things about climate change because of the environment, which leaves out everything else. Obviously, it is a huge environmental problem. Um, but the fact that our economy and our environment, you know, I, I like to talk about um, the environment as our, the human life support system. You know, they are totally interlinked. You can't have a healthy one without a healthy other. And so, you know, a lot of our politicians now say, well, yes, we want to act on climate change, but not if it means problems for the economy <clears throat> without actually talking about the costs of inaction. You know, we just had the Black Summer bushfires, for example, is, is now known to be the costliest climate-related disaster <clears throat> in Australia's history. You know, Australians are really good or pretty good at mopping up the mess afterwards, but they're not very good at preparing for the mess yeah. in the first place. Yeah. So I think that all of those things intersect in Australia to, to slow things down. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I agree with you. I mean, with the, if, we, if we don't do it now, then there'll be nothing for the kids. We need to really link that in people's minds that it's this is not just an environmental greeny issue. This is actually a massive economic issue. And, you know, as you said, the bushfires will be the most costliest, um, you know, natural disaster we've had in Australia. And, and a lot of that with some decisions made, made possibly decades ago, um, could have not ended up in being as disastrous as it was. And I agree, you know, we are awesome at mopping up. We are awesome at, and, and that's even from an emotional level. We're great at picking people up after they've had the mental health breakdown. How about we look after their mental health first so they don't have the breakdown? It's that sort of, that sort of same philosophy. I look at the emotional toll that something like the the, the bushfires had um, on on whole communities, individuals, whole communities, whole states. I just wonder, you know, for both of you, um, having been involved in this so long, it must get a bit depressing to keep beating your head against the same the same brick wall. I mean, Ove, do you do you find sometimes that you just think? What, what am I doing um, with all of my study, my research, my ideas? Um, because it must take a bit of an emotional toll. Yeah, look, it does. And, and in my case, and it's, it's probably a very personal um, phenomenon, how you re react to this. It's a sort of waking up in the morning knowing that the problem hasn't been solved and the kids are still sort of, you know, uh, out there exposed ultimately uh, the second part of the century. I mean, those, those sort of thoughts go through then, and some of them are irrational, some of them 
are not. But I think it's that sort of anxiety that I feel is building up. And you throw in on top of that COVID-19 and, and other stresses, you know, even just what's going on in Afghanistan. And I think we have this sort of pressure cooker of anxiety. And, and, I, and I think they are now starting to detect that, you know, this is having a really big impact on people's, you know, mental health uh, over time. Just going back to that comment about, you know, the bushfires and their costs, the other part of this is that it's really good for business because Australia is sitting on these new economy minerals uh, that are in short supply elsewhere, but we've got them. You know, we've already talked about the sort of renewable energy resources. To me, that is the opposition, that, that is the um, opportunity as well that we're missing out on, is we're not positioning ourselves to sort of to use those to build a new sort of um, economy and go powering off in the future. Every day we delay costless dealing. And that, again, comes back to political, political leadership and, you know, the resetting of rules that needs to happen. When the two of you talk about it, it's so clear of the detrimental and the downside to total inaction. Yet, I, and I just cannot believe that you know, our political leaders don't see that. And you could hang your hat on having the greatest renewables economy, economy in the world. Like Australia is, as you said, we're so well positioned to be able to do that. And, I, and you know, I think I, I know, you know, your reference to COVID and, and how the toll on, you know, people's mental well-being um, through that and through the lockdowns. And, you know, a lot of people I've spoken to just in doing podcast interviews over the last couple of weeks people really are afraid, scared and anxious about what is happening in regards to climate change in the world. And this will be a monumental issue for us as we go forward because, you know, it's not just the, you know, for the health systems, for all of that, it puts a massive burden when it could, you could just make those decisions now. Sure, they're hard and sure, the short-term costs might be high, but the long-term benefit is just, you know, so far outweighs that. Leslie, how do you, how do you get out of bed in the morning and keep going? <laughs> I've often said that climate change scientists like Ovin myself are, are the oddest scientists in the world because we do get out of bed every day but hope that we're wrong about the science. Yep. And there aren't any other scientists that I think feel like that. I see it, you know, and Ove and I have both been in this game a long time, and I think the only way we do go forward is that we we sort of petition our brain, you know. So one part of our brain is, yes, we've known about this stuff for 30 years and it's really bad and it could get even worse. And the other part of our brain that we put a little fence around is, well, what can I do? You know, how can I contribute you know the the way not to feel so hopeless is to act and so you know I constantly try to say to myself well what am I good at what can I do how can I contribute I can't fix everything but I can do something and that's and then we go forward like that and people often ask me are you hopeful about the future and I say well I have to be it's a strategy rather than an emotion if I don't have that as a strategy then I would give up and if we yes. all give up then we're we're screwed basically so yeah. so we, we sort of uh, I think approach this in a kind of a, a schizophrenic type of way in the you know lay person's understanding of that term um, we have to partition the bad stuff and keep moving on and acting because that's the only thing we can do. Yeah, yep. I totally agree with that. 
Yeah. But I think the, the, the two choices we have, of course, one of them is um, to do as you say, but the other is we could be hedonistic and walk away from the problem. Yes. And I, mean, I, I, don't think, I don't think like that very often, but sometimes you just go. It's tempting. Uh, throw, hmm? It's tempting. You know, the idea of, you know, disappearing into Australia, into the bush that we so much like, and far away from all of these, you know, um, yep. troubles. And yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's um, when both of you are talking about that there, it reminds me of having spoken to a lot of people who survived major traumas in their life. It's exactly the same thing that you do. So what you, you, you're actually going through trauma um, in some form every day by the inaction caused or by, you know, you know what the science is, you're looking at it and it's unbelievably depressing. And it's the same thing, you know, even for myself. So you've got to partition that, that trauma off, deal with it and, and realise that that's real and the, the science is real and what is going on is real. But then say, okay, what is my goal? What is my strategy to go forward? And it's like, you know, a lot of the people, you know, whether they were you know, buried in, in an earthquake or whatever they're surviving, they talk about it's that ability. What made them survive was that they had something to live for. So they had that goal or that strategy yeah. to live for. And it may have been they wanted to come out and see a loved one again or whatever it is. So, you know, when, over when you talk about it, you know, we're doing it for the, gener the generations coming through behind us. That's, you know, because we love those generations and we care for them and we want to give them a planet that is, you know, somewhat inhabitable and, and able to be lived in. And, and it's, you know, the, the correlations and the parallels are, 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 so, um, are so similar in that this is, you know, this is a trauma. If we think about climate change as you know, an overarching trauma that's occurring um, to the planet and the world we live in. Um, how, how do we deal with that? Well, we've got to have goals, we've got to have strategies, and we've got to be able to move forward. But what are some of the strategies that you think we can do in a really simple form to try and change um, people's minds and to try and get people engaged in the issue of climate change? Well, when people ask me, what, what can I do? The, the first thing I say to them is the number one thing you can do if you're over 18 is vote and make climate change the number one reason why you would vote for somebody because that's how we'll get really big change. Um, you know, fossil fuel, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on personal action and, of course, personal action is also important, but fossil fuel companies do like to shelve responsibilities down to the personal level because it's a distraction from the big ticket items that they also need to do. So, you know, apart from vote, think about where your money is, um, mm -hmm. think about who you talk to. People like Ove and I in our jobs, you know, we give probably, we talk to probably thousands of people every year about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I see my job as trying to present the science in as honest and clear and forward-looking way as I possibly can. And that's the thing that I can do. Um, yep. And then I hope that all of those other people out there do what they do best and contribute. It's it's little bricks in the wall that we're building. Yeah. Ove? Yeah, well, she's ticked off my list as well there, but I think the one at the bottom there with communication is really important. Um, you know, people like Leslie are great sort of role models for, you know, and, and if you have a number of those, and I think that's where the Climate Council has built this sort of strength of, of you know leading people in society who are active on this issue, uh, to me that's very compelling, and it, it allows you to sort of, I think, to sort of 
um, to, to, to get people to want to emulate that. You know, I too can be you know, a champion of, of the solution. But I agree, um, you know, all those other ones, the voting one is very important. Um, yep. Whether or not it, it will work on the short term uh, is, of course, questionable, but, but I think that is it. As many people voting to get a leadership that can see the horizon, get away from the short, um, short termism because they have a landslide victory, change the system. You know, it's got to be everyone also on 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 the, the deck, and it's got to involve business. It's got to involve teachers. It's got to involve almost every part of society. One thing I've done over the years is I've given various talks to student groups that are coming out of high school. You know, oh, I want to do this. Is it worth doing? And, you know, I'm I'm not a climate scientist. And you say, well, no, climate. The the solution involves every different profession, and probably then some. Yep. You know? and, and to me, it's, it's a moment of all hands on the deck and, and get to the pump and make sure we don't sink. And yep. that could be actually very compelling, I think, and, and, and happen very quickly, as we've already talked about in terms of solutions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's the thing, the, the big parts. You said, you know, it's got to be political, but it's also got to be business. And I, and I see that there's a lot of things happening, especially with big public companies now. Um, you know, the company that I work for that owns Threadbow, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the back end with ethical investing and pressuring mm-hmm. companies to basically make these decisions. You know, BHP's come out in the last couple of days and made some monumental decisions going forward in, in where they're going to put their money and their future investment. Andrew Forrest has done the same. There's a, there's a lot of good things happening in those areas. And I think that that leadership will will make the change because we we generally followers and we generally, you know, if, if, if it's a good idea and it's not too uncomfortable, we, we will follow. But I think one of the big areas and you've spoken about is communication. Um, yeah, we can have all the ideas we want, all the plans we want. We can actually have really good leadership, but unless we've got the media on board, um, you know, that great <laughs> entity that is not only, you know, the traditional medias, but social media, um, then it, it's really, really difficult to, to go forward. You know, we're running out of time. So we actually need, we need that, that big thing. And, and I don't know if you've, if you've been through like the bushfires um, and got out of them and that didn't trigger you to think that there's something wrong, then, then what, you know, what is it going to take to, to get us, you know, to tip us over and to make us realise that this is, you know, a really, really crucial issue? You know, it, what, what, what does it take? Um, because I, I just don't have faith that we're going to get the political leadership in the short term to, to make those decisions. Well, I mean, one hopes that it won't be a sort of a series of very devastating disasters that, that make us listen. And unfortunately, I do feel that there's an element of that that's going to play out, that humans are sort of, you know, as you said, they're very adaptive. They're, you know, they, they, they roll with the punches and everything. But even that sort of is, is sort of saying that they, they won't respond until the, the chips are right down and there needs to be no question. And that worries me because a lot of the climate um, changes that we're seeing are very slow evolving but have, have, have a lot of, ent- a lot of um, momentum. And once they're going, they're really hard to stop. I mean, something like the um, loss of, of, of ice sheets and so on takes hundreds if not millennia to, to recover, you know, sea level rise. What we do today will be happening, you know, a thousand years from uh, from now. Um, ocean acidification, ten thousand years before we could reverse that. So we're making decisions now, which have very long term consequences, mm. and uh, you know that 
marry them with the human spirit of she'll be right um, <laughs> until it ain't. Um, probably not. It's the not good. <laughs> no. <laughs> probably we need to make a few more um, sort of days after tomorrow movies. Yes. Yeah, sort of try and get people to focus and say, this is the climate, stupid. Yep. <laughs> Until it affects me, you know, it's not in my backyard at the moment, so I'm pretty good. You know, if I can still go skiing next year, then, you know, that's fine. I'll, we'll spend our millions of dollars on electricity to make snow, renewable energy, of course, in Threadbow. But, um, and repairing your skis as they go across the gravel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's it. Until that comes, is that when people realise that there's an issue? Leslie, you were going to say something. Yeah, I do think in Australia we do have a sort of a bit of an obsessive focus on the federal government in terms of climate change because they're so clearly hopeless on, on policy. In fact, they're rated at the bottom in the world in terms of climate policy by the UN. Um, but I do think we also need to acknowledge that in the vacuum, because of the vacuum at the federal leadership level, there's a lot of other bodies and people and governments stepping up. So, you know, all of our state and territory governments have net zero targets. You know, they're, they're, they're too far away, but they've got them. We are seeing business, as you mentioned before, really stepping up because businesses are now realising that climate risk for their businesses is a really big deal. And I think we're seeing more and more communities becoming galvanised at that grassroots level. So while it would all move a lot faster if we had a decent federal government with decent climate policies. There are a lot of other things happening underneath that and stepping up to fill that gap. And I think coming back to what we were talking about, about communication before, I remember when I started on the Climate Commission and we started going around to doing town hall meetings and talking to people about climate change. And one of the things that some people said to us was, oh, you're just preaching to the converted, you know. And, and I originally thought, well, I really just have to change the minds of all those sceptics and convert them and then that's the secret. But after doing it for a couple of years, I realised that, A, I wasn't going to change the minds of most sceptics, so why bother? Yep. And, B, it was the converted that are going to be the ones to take action. So I... I, I reframed my thinking about communication in terms of I do have to preach to the converted because I have to move them from sitting on the couch being concerned to taking action. Yeah. The atmosphere doesn't care about what you think. You know, it's affected by what we all do. Yep. So can find that's another sort of key to the the action sort of spectrum is if you can find things for people to do make it easy for them to do the right thing whether it be for economic motivations or environmental motivations or whatever um, that's really the key so getting hung up on persuading people I think is often a waste of time yep. and what got to focus on is finding those actions and encouraging people to take those actions to move us all forward. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that, you know, we, I come right back to the very beginning of our com conversation where it can seem overwhelming when you look at it as this massive big thing that's occurring. But if you can just pick one little thing out. It's like you were talking about before, Leslie, it's, it's little bricks at a time, just picking those. Because as humans, our brains 
work in that way. We can, we can usually do pretty simple things. We pick off three or four tasks a day. We do those, you know, we can do that pretty well. But if you said, okay, there's a thousand things you need to do today, we just shut down and we go away. Leadership, you know, as we know, comes in so many forms. If, if leadership comes from my 10 year old daughter going to school and, and her lunchbox is packed, you know, it's not just all bought from the shop in, in pre-packaged packets and whatever it's, it's packaged in washable containers and doing it just tiny little things like that. That's leadership from her, you know, through me empowering her to do that. So I think that we, you know, we always talk about that grassroots level and bringing it back down. I think that in some ways, that's where the climate change movement really needs to be going. We need to be doing all of the political lobbying. We need to do all of that because they'll make the big changes. But if we can get that groundswell from just general society and those people who are believers, then hopefully we'll guilt the rest into it and they will come along, you know, sort of drawing to a little bit of a close here, and I won't end on this one, but if there was one thing that you could put the fear of God, or if you don't believe in God, just the fear into society um, of people, what would it be in regards to the future as you see it in regards to climate change? I'd be saying um, the most important thing that I can do for my children's future is to vote for people for whom climate action is their number one motivation. Yep. That'd be my one thing that I can do for my children's future. Yeah. So your fear, I mean, the fear is that the world will not be in a place that'll be uh, very inhabitable for your children and your grandchildren. That's basically it. That's that's how we should preface it. Ove? Yeah, so I'd preface my remarks saying that if we don't do anything, we may enter a time where rapid tipping points will occur, which will flip the planet from sort of habitable to be largely inhabitable. And that's quite feasible or quite, um, it's quite credible at this point, given what we understand about ice sheets, atmosphere, biological systems, fire, and so on, is that we could go very rapidly to a very, very hostile state that scares me because that means you just overwhelm everything and we're sort of living probably Mad Max would be a better place to be. Um, But I tend not to go down that road because I I think it's, um, yes, it's it's possible, it's it's an incredible scenario and so on. What we've got to have is the, the pathway out, the optimism in all of this. Yes, we have a big thing we have to do, which is to quash the emissions uh, and, and so that we get down to zero within the, within the decade is my my feeling. Yep. And at the same time, we've got to tell people, look, there is a pathway out of here, uh, and here's how we 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 go uh, to that pathway. Yes, it's going to have bumps on the road. It's got that you know elevated CO two and and weather patterns. So but by mid century, we will be able to sigh a sigh of relief and mop up the remaining impacts of climate change. That. I think it's the way I'd answer the disaster question by being optimistic. Yep. yep, which is awesome because that's the message of hope. And I and I agree with you. I have great faith in humanity. We do some pretty stupid things, but we also do some pretty amazing things. And I, I believe that the message of hope is probably a more engaging than the, the message of fear as we go forward. Because if people, you know, just fear can freeze us and we just stop and we don't do anything and that'll just create more inaction. So I think from you know, today's conversation, it's been great to, to talk to you both 
um, obviously having been involved in you know the issue for for such a large part of both of lives, but to see that there really is hope to come out of this and that the, yeah, let's be anxious and let's be worried and let's have some fear about what the future holds, but let's really look at how we can engage from the very highest level of politics all the way to the, the very lowest levels of our families and our local communities and use all of those little initiatives and things that we've discussed today to be able to get a result because we need to take action now and if we don't um yeah i i don't want to to leave that world for my for my daughter and you know like to say thank you so much for your time today um hopefully uh we'll have spoken to a lot of people today keep communicating going and um yeah thank you for all the work you're doing this sphere it's um it's amazing and um i'm glad that you both get out of bed in the morning <laughs> well, thanks keep up the great work you're doing as well that communication. Yep. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Okay, thanks. A big thank you to Professor Leslie Hughes and Professor Ove Hogulberg for talking with me on this very important topic. If you'd like to know more about the Climate Council of Australia, of which Leslie is a founding member, please visit climatecouncil.org.au. And with that brings us to the end of Season 1 of The Elements. A huge thank you for listening and to everyone who has reached out or sent messages of support, keep them coming in. We love hearing from you. Good News is production on Season 2 is already underway. I look forward to being able to share all new episodes soon. Finally, we want to thank all the survivors and first responders who courageously shared their stories with us. I know how hard it can be to talk about a significant trauma in your life, and I truly admire the courage and strength of everyone we have spoken to. We thank and pay tribute to them, and all those who have lost loved ones or still struggle with the aftermath of a natural disaster.